Join LARB next Thursday, June 24th at 5 p.m. for a roundtable conversation about writing, genre, and audience expectation with acclaimed authors and screenwriters Brandon Easton, Walter Mosley, Polly Yu, and Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. This event is free and open to the public, but we invite you to support our public programming here at LARB by making a donation with your RSVP. All donors of $5 or more will receive LARB's Best of TV, a selection of the decade's best television criticism. All donors of $25 or more will also receive a limited edition LARP tote bag. Find out more information and RSVP today at lareviewofbooks.org slash events. Hello and welcome to the LARP Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host today, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. You're enjoying New York? I am, yeah. After a very lengthy hiatus of being neither here nor there, not in LA or New York, we are finally in New York. And yes, it's really nice. And it's nice to finally be talking to you. Yeah, you too. And actually, both of our guests today live in New York. As well, and I and I think they know each other, and maybe you'll all meet one day now that you're all there. And um, we so we have a double show today. And first, we're speaking with Kate Zambrino about her new book, "To Write as If Already Dead." That's a book about Hervé Guibert's book, "To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life." And that's followed with my conversation with Susan Bernofsky about her book, "Clairvoyant of the Small: The Life of Robert Walser," and that's her biography of Robert Walser much-loved writer who she's translated for years. And this is the first biography on him in quite a while. And there's a lot of synergy between these two guests, especially because Kate Zambrino often writes about Robert Walser. He figured largely into her last book, Drifts, into her novel, and also, you know, just two two writers delving so deep into the work of of other writers, I think is, is always interesting. Yeah, it seems like a natural fit, so maybe we should get to it. Great. Kate Sambrino is the author of many acclaimed books, including Drifts, Appendix Project, Screen Tests, Book of Mutter, and Heroines. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Virginia Quarterly Review, and many other places. She teaches in the graduate nonfiction program at Columbia University and at Sarah Lawrence College. Her new book is called To Write As If Already Dead, a two-part study of the French writer and photographer Hervé Guibert and his book To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life. Guibert, who was diagnosed with HIV in 1988, famously documented the rise of AIDS in the French cultural and literary community, photographing and writing about his friends like Michel Foucault who died of AIDS around the same time. Guibert's was one of the first books published on AIDS, and he became a very public speaker on the subject. Guibert later documented his own illness and physical disintegration. He died in December 1991 when he was 36 years old. Five of his books were published posthumously. Zambrino's new book explores Hervé's writing style, his experiences with death and illness, as well as the relationship between gossip, fact, and fiction. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me and for that wonderful introduction. Kate, I wanted to start just about the way the book is written, because in a way similar to Guy Bear's To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life, 
your book documents its own process of being written. So the trials and tribulations of what has gone into the book is very much part subject, as in Guibert's book. And I know that's a motif for you throughout a lot of your work. So I wanted to maybe start there and talk about that. And also writing here is shown in so many different lights, both in the beautiful way that your book opens, you know, by a window with a precious moment to spare and to think and to really address something. But then also there's a, a very precise sense of a clock ticking of life exerting pressure of writing as deadlines. And of course, for Guibert, the deadline that looms over his book is his own death. And in your case, you know, there's financial precarity, there's different forms of illness, there's motherhood, there's child rearing, pregnancy. I mean, so how does that play out, you know, in terms of as you're writing about the writing? I'm really interested. I've been really interested lately, and I, I should probably look this up, what the etymology of deadline actually is, because especially when applied to Guibert's later work, this intense period of productivity that really came through so much suffering, but also seeing the concept of writing as this release, this necessity during the course of his illness, the concept of the deadline seems so so pertinent, like really this line, this line you must get to before a death occurs, which is, you know, in some ways so much I think of the drive of writing has to do with mortality. But, you know, in Gebert's case, it's quite beautiful and, you know, incredibly sad, his relationship to writing and to deadlines. I think in my work, in my writing life, I've always been interested in the material conditions of a writer. And I think as opposed to feeling like with heroines, I kind of documented the material conditions of a writer historically as well as in the contemporary, I continue to grow more and more interested in it, more and more interested in the question of bodies and labor and time. And then what happens when we add the contemporary condition of precarity to the mixture. And when we add, yeah, the limits, the limits of the body, the limits of time in relationship to one's lifespan and whether one is able to have this time to be a thinking person. And so, you know, with Drifts, I was really interested in Rilke, like the material conditions of his life that made him write and struggle and have writer's block with the notebooks of Multilords Briga over the decade he tried to write it. And then, yeah, with Geber, I think it was another sort of way I could think through who writes, who has time, what happens to one's work when you are told that you don't have any more time to write. And I felt like for me, these were really the questions that I was interested in thinking through. And I think also, you know, a character in Hervé Gebert's To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life, which my book is in some ways a study of, there's a character based on the conceptual artist and book maker Sophie Cal, who is such a prankster, you know, who's such a conceptual artist, you know, and so much of her work deals with the durational. And I write about how she does a work that's inspired by her being made a character in Gebert's work. And so I think along with this very real and very serious philosophical question of 
what writers produce fragments, you know, a fragmented work that deals by necessity with time, labor, and, you know, the exigencies of time, whether it be because of caretaking or, you know, knowing that you might not survive long. I think there's also in my work a real conceptual feel to it, that I've always been interested in the durational quality of other people's work as well as my own work. And I think there's a kind of a prankish quality to this most recent work. I think there's a playfulness in the realization that the I'm not writing the study, that the whole first half is instead a novella about a friendship that I'm kind of sneaking into an academic study that was not my contract. And then realizing I didn't actually write the book, you know, actually producing some sort of study. Well, there's a really, I did think that was funny because there's a point where it becomes clear that that first part has been turned down and they've said, no, you can't, can't just do that. You have to actually write a real study of We Bear's book. So then it becomes the second half, I feel like kind of answers that realization like that didn't fly with your publishers now you have only a couple months to to actually write the book they wanted it's a little stuntish of me I mean they never actually rejected it but since it was I mean the editors this is for a series at Columbia University Press and it's edited by Jenny Davidson and Nicholas Dames and then Philip Leventhal was my other editor who's the literary editor there, they were very, very encompassing over what kind of work I was allowed to write. However, it did go through peer review. So I think I, I mean, I knew that the first half when it passed and I didn't, I wanted to kind of write a work that was not the work that was almost inspired by the work, like channeling it. And then I was going to write the study. I had I had been struggling with the form of this for a while. And then I read Enrica Villamata's Because I Said So, which is a small New Directions novella in translation where the first half is a story kind of based on Sophie Cal. And then the second half is Sophie Cal instructing Enrica Villamata's to write this story. So I had that sort of element to it. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Like I'm going to write a novella in an academic study and then I'm going to write the writing of it. So the first half, the, the part that we were just discussing is, as you mentioned, dedicated to friendship. And that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which is part of the things, you know, in the diminishment of time and the growth of responsibilities and the growth of a family, one of the things that suffers is, is friendship. And there's a link that you draw between literary and cultural production and friendship, essentially, and the kind of time that one has in cultivating friendships. and. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between those two, because I'm not sure it's intuitive that friendship and literary or artistic production are somehow involved with each other. I think for both Hervé Guibert and for you, it seems like they really are. Whereas usually, you know, we really think of production as a solitary sort of activity, just doing it alone in your house. So what's the connection there for you? And what do you think is the connection for Guibert? Oh, I love that question. That's such an interesting question that I think opens up so many ideas about also writing and the relationship to capitalism and artistic production and the relationship to the eventual commodified form that it will take. I think that friendship in its essence is, is struggle, but it's a struggle away from capitalism. There's no end product. There's no object to friendship. Friendship is ongoing 
it's durational and involves work, but the kind of work it involves is, I mean, it involves a lot of emotional labor and upkeep, but its end is for ideally, especially thinking of literary friendship, thinking through things together as opposed to producing something. And I think that, you know, when we think of the concept of a blog now, those who kind of like weren't there like 10 years ago, 20 years ago for this idea that there were these online friendships that would occur that became incredibly deep and meaningful might not like get it like, oh, these, that there was these conversations happening in the comments of a blog. But for me, I think I'm always trying to get back to what felt like this very idyllic space of the internet, which was about community and like wrestling with ideas and thinking through what kind of writers we wanted to be, you know, kind of outside of the attention economy, like outside of these, the concept of the name and the concept of these major like spheres of literary production. And that was a really permissive space for me to start, you know, thinking through things. And so in the first half of this book, I am in some ways elegizing this time when writing and thinking for me wasn't about an object produced at the end. It wasn't about commodifying every impulse which, you know, I mean, ideally, I still try to get to with the private ephemeral space of the notebook. But, you know, that's a difficult thing to achieve, not like thinking of everything as work. And I'm elegizing and fictionalizing a quite brilliant writer who I met under a pseudonym in the space of literary blogs. And, you know, thinking through our very different relationships to being authors And, you know, the blog space was the space of a lot of work and attention, a lot of upkeep with friendship and ideas. And there were so many fights online and there was so much conflict, right? But it was all about like poetry or like thinking through gender fluidity and the grotesque in literature. You know, it was all of these ideas that were so like sparred and thought about so intensely. And for me, I still maintain some of these friendships over email with people I rarely meet in person. But, you know, of course, there's only a couple writers I keep that sort of level of engagement with because otherwise, it's you know, it's quite hard. And of course, you know, those who do take care of others, those who have students and other work, as we all do, it's very difficult to maintain that. But yeah, I think in my current world, except as a teacher of writing, you know, as a mom, you know, I very happily go through the world not talking about writing with anyone I meet in the public sphere. (laughs) And so it's, I like to maintain this, these relationships where I can really still not talk about publishing, but talk about writing. And this like weird, weird thing we do, which is maintain this writing practice And these are all people I met on the blog. And I think share a similar tradition and desire. I think that Gebert friendship was very important. Gebert also played quite liberally with the boundaries of his mentors. I mean, you could argue I do as well with this book. But, you know, Gebert, you know, was mentored by Michel Foucault and earlier was mentored by Roland Barthes. And like his work followed after them. 
like even, you know, these illness books still follow after Foucault's theories, follow after these conversations with Foucault. So there's this real love there. And there's real sense of, to quote one of Foucault's interviews that I talk about in the book, of the formlessness of queer male friendships and that sort of literary tradition, which even like, you know, goes back to Plato's Symposium, like the sense of like power relationships, hierarchies and formlessness. And so I think he did participate in a real tradition of mentor and mentee, but I think, you know, Gibert was also very much into the sort of individual sense of a writer and fame and success. And whether I am or not is something I do not know. <laughs> I definitely kind of look at this writer who I see as in many ways more pure because not everything had a project in what they did and wonder whether I've become like a careerist monster. That's some of the, the, the agony in the book, the, the worry in the book. But yeah, I think that Gebert took friendship very seriously, but I think for Gebert, his art friendships like with Sophie Kahl or with the actress Isabelle Ajani or Michel Foucault, all who are fictionalized in the work, they're kind of sparring relationships. Well, let me yeah. ask just a question about that because the book, Gibert's book is about, you know, ostensibly a friend who promised him he was going to get him some important drugs that were going to help him and, and that didn't come through. So that's the first betrayal. But then also the book itself was considered a betrayal in some ways of Foucault because it outed him and it Everyone understood from the book that Foucault died of AIDS and that had been hidden before. That's correct. Yeah, it, it tends to be the lens, even when it's reviewed in the contemporary now with the semiotext reissue, the translation, it tends to be the main lens that the work is read through and was in the contemporary was is whether he portrayed this quite famous thinker. Yeah, and but then at the same time, there's something about writing about people that we also think of as a form of saving them, like saving them from obscurity, committing them to posterity, that there can be a real loving quality of wanting to draw a portrait of someone in words and think about them. And it is a form of homage, like that's, you know, to quote thinkers that we appreciate is a way that we pay homage to them. So I wondered if you could just talk about that kind of complexity in the book. And it's also something you struggle with actual intimacies are, you know, prickly and squeamish and quite difficult. And so I, I really admire Gibert for how he writes Sophie Cal as Anna the pain in the ass in the work. And I think Sophie Cal, fellow prankster, understood the spirit in which he's satirizing her or paying homage to her in the work, which she returns. You know, they had a lot of pretty hilarious fallings out when they met in Japan, including her barging in on him when he was taking a bath. That seemed to be the main conflict they had for a while. And that he, when he interviewed her as a photo critic, he stole her childhood photo. He wouldn't return it or the newspaper wouldn't return it. And she was furious. So for them, that was a case of two like-minded thinkers kind of getting each other's project, like kind of getting that they wrote about friendship encounter. But certainly part of the squeamishness of Gibert as well as Sophie Cal is how they do cross boundaries, how there can seem to be a parasitic quality to their work in terms of taking from others' lives and making it about art or making someone an object. And I think ultimately there's no purity in writing about another. 
you know, you're always making someone this other when you write about them. I really love like the tradition of new narratives, which is, you know, an American and Canadian quite queer tradition that was happening at the same time as Gibera's writing, a little later as Gibera's writing in France, where they fictionalized each other's. They wrote about gossip. They wrote about telephone conversations and with other names. And they were just so aware of the joke and the intimacy and the laugh of it. And I think a lot of new narrative was also quite political because with AIDS, these writers and artists were losing their friends. They were losing their readers. They were losing their fellow writers. They were losing their friends. And to put each other in each other's work was a loving act, even if there were some hurt feelings along the way. So for me, I think of my writing. I mean, I definitely, there's definitely been hurt feelings in terms of people I've written about, including even recently. Most people don't like being written about at all, (laughs) I would say, even if it is very loving. Most people aren't like super thrilled with it because people want to write their own narrative. But with the writers I view as kind of co-conspirators, like Bonnie Kapil or Sophia Samatar, who both Drifts and the Gibera study are dedicated to, they're kind of always kind of in on the process. I deeply believe in referentiality and citations and, you know, quoting. And so they were, they were very aware of the work. And so I think that's different than writing about someone who's not aware of it. I mean, both are fair game. It's just people might have different interpretations of it. You know, I was reading in Silvio Federici's book, Caliban and the Witch, that gossip was actually a medieval term for friendship. Like, so a gossip was like a friendship and it was very much among women. And a gossip was also a term for the woman who helped midwife, right? So we think of gossip as this impolite or immoral quality now, right? But I think gossip has really important political possibilities and also possibilities against silencing. I challenge in the work the pretty popular belief that Gibert betrayed Foucault. And because I don't actually think it matters, because I think that as Gibert writes very clearly, he's writing of AIDS. He's writing of someone who, the fact that he has chosen not to know for so long whether he was seropositive in an incredibly repressive society at the time, of course, like like the states where you weren't supposed to speak about it. He writes in his own work about going under pseudonyms whenever he's getting medically tested, refusing to take the seropositivity test, et cetera. And, you know, there is a sense that like people knew, but it was hidden. It was supposed to be hidden, you know? And so I think the fact that he, I don't think he really did out Foucault, but I think it was considered according to the French public impolite or immoral to speak of such things. And I think so much of the work is resisting the incredibly Catholic, conservative, moralizing and silencing project of an homophobic project that was, you know, AIDS denial or suppression in that period. So that is the dominant concept that he did betray him But I think he is, you know, he's channeling Thomas Bernhard, the Austrian writer who wrote of like the hypocrisy and conservatism of Nazi era Austria. And I think he is kind of challenging a society 
So I think, yeah, I think there's a real, there's a real interesting repression that occurs to repeat the narrative of Gebert's betrayal. It's interesting also to hear you. So the book is called To Write As If Already Dead. And one of the points in the book, you talk about what Gebert's writing might have meant and how he might have already been writing as if he were dead. But to also think about gossip and his writing as part of engaging in gossip, gossip is very much something that, or at least I think of as part of the living, right? That the dead don't gossip amongst themselves. And <laughs> and gossip sort of has like this unsettled quality, right? That like somebody passed something on to somebody else, like it has kind of a transitional movement. Like gossip is something mm. that seems like very busy and alive. Like dead gossip is gossip that's no longer relevant. Nobody cares about it. <laughs> so it's interesting to think about writing as if already dead, but still being able to engage in this kind of gossipy, bitchy form, as you call it. And the sort of resistance to death in that sense, maybe in terms of what Gibert is doing, which is like gossiping from beyond the grave and managing to sort of engage in something that's super alive while not being here physically. There's such a morbidity to his voice in yeah. the novel, but such a vivacious quality to it. There is this sense of like the stopping, like giving a fuck beyond the grave. And he writes it like as if it's a work of exile. Like he structures mm. the work like he's been completely exiled in Rome. It feels like a plague novel. There's a plague aspect to how he depicts an emptied out Rome. And there is a sense of that he's writing and he, he has lost all his friends. He cannot speak to his friends anymore. He doesn't want to worry them and he doesn't have any friends anymore. And so he can only speak to the book who is his companion and the reader. In some ways, I think this mirrors, you know, another work that I, if I can say like male hysterical work, that's almost mystical, which is George Bataille's Guilty, where George Bataille at the beginning of Guilty is also, you know, feeling this post-war paranoia and this sense of, you know, he's lost everyone. And he says at the beginning, I quote this in the work, I cannot tell any of my friends about this. I can only tell the reader. I couldn't possibly speak about this to any of my friends. So there is a sense of my friend, Sophia Semitar calls it a work that has a posthumous feeling to it. Like to write like you just scorched earth, right? There's no one there. You can actually write the text that you want. And that's what's really intriguing to me about Kabir's work. You know, he is writing it, obviously wanting to sell it, obviously like wanting it to be huge. There's this real like revenge quality, this like Nietzschean spirit of resentment in it that he wants it to be huge. He wants to be famous. He wants to like say, fuck you, Bill, to the you know pharmacy exec who betrayed him, who he fictionalizes as Bill. But then he's also like just writing whatever he wants. There is that sense of, writing something like he's dead why would he care like he's writing this from beyond the grave and i think as someone who although that might not be a conception when you read my work of course like anyone else i struggle with the ethics of writing others but ethics are not a monolithic thing like ethics are something that have to be considered on you know they're a quite individual concept but i really envy Gebert's spirit. Like I envy his bitchiness. Like I envy how impolite he is. And I feel like for me in my actual life, I am 
because of precarity, like anyone else, you have to be polite. You have to be always, you know, almost subservient. And so the work and this work was a space I could explore like these negative or ugly feelings. Yeah. That bitchy prose section was one of my favorites. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think, yeah, you get, you know, how sometimes Guibert is not, he's not polite. He's mean. No. He's yeah. mean. Yeah. Like there's this, you know, I quote a friend saying to me, oh, Guibert is such an asshole. And it, yeah, he is. And I think, you know, another a writer who I love quite a lot, and I'm trying to write about his films and his artwork now is David Vodorovic. And Close to the Knives, his memoir of dying from AIDS and his close mentor, Peter Hujar, dying from AIDS, is also filled with rage, but it's filled with such a deep care and a deep spirit of activism and care for others. And I think that's why in many ways David Vonerovitz has been like kind of made into a saint. Like I adore him. You know, like I think of him as a spirit of like, you know, an activist and the writer who I'd like to be. And Gaber doesn't have that. And that's why he's deeply challenging to us, right? That he's he is writing less with that care for others. But I still see something like deeply, deeply urgent and brave about his project. But yeah, he's he was such an asshole. <laughs> One last question to touch on, just because we were just talking about plagues as part of this book is written at the very beginning of the coronavirus and we are maybe emerging out of it, potentially, not worldwide, certainly. And I was wondering about your thinking about writing during that time and you write about it and what the connections were between the plague that you chronicle in this book and the one that Kibera chronicles in his Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the reason why I incorporate the contemporary at that time is it's kind of the project I gave myself once I began that December to actually write the second part, drawing from notes, drawing from diaries. I thought I would move forward with my deadline until I had finished it. And then to incorporate all of these weird, uncanny resonances, it just... I felt like I had to do it. I had to push forward and I had to be thinking kind of in the document of this. One of the works I write about in the part that's actually more of the informal study in the second part is, you know, Sontag on Sontag on illness and then Sontag in her second part, AIDS and its metaphors. And I really appreciated how much she deals with the language of plague literature and the deep moralizing that happens during a plague. And I felt that that was very clarifying to think of that historically. But I think within that, I think that there are really key differences between the AIDS crisis and now. There is, of course, the massive anti-Asian hatred and bigotry that's emerged from this, and which is also apparent in the Kibera study. He alludes to the Chinese flu at one point in a very There's definitely a lot of casual racism in the work, as well as like thinking about the origins of where AIDS came from. There's that real xenophobic strain. And so he is kind of following, he's following kind of Sontag's dictates of what plague literature does. There are the cliches, there are the military metaphors that he uses, everything she writes about. But I think a key difference is kind of what we were talking about is that AIDS was considered a deeply moral thing that you deserved, that you did to yourself, 
that you deserved and that you should be deeply ashamed of. And I think the shame has so much to do with why there was not first person testimony, why he was such an outlier in writing about it, because it was not something people even you know spoke about amidst you know homophobia and this place of you know the society of deep moral hypocrisy that Foucault himself wrote about that he dedicated his his later work to dissecting. And so I do think that's different because I think for the most part now, there is less a sense that someone might deserve to do that and that they like the deep silencing project. But I think with having Anthony Fauci in the news again, learning of double protocols and compassion trials, having the same pharmaceutical companies being brought up when dealing with AIDS drugs, I'm really struck by... I hope not to end on a huge downer. I was struck by and deeply activated by just how deeply inhumane American society is in dealing with illness, how intensely inhumane our healthcare system is, the massively bloated prices of AIDS drugs, you know, and other pharmaceuticals. So I think it also, you know, shows us we haven't really come that far in terms of dealing with ill people, with humanity. So I think that that is, that was pretty clarifying. I mean, the thing is that filled me with the most rage was the New York Times headlines where the stock prices were the most important. Like for weeks, it was the stock prices. And I think, you know, Gebert in his own way with his his just sudden fire to this pharmaceutical exec is also writing about the complete alienation of the human from big pharma, which still continues with PrEP and PEP, with AIDS drugs and HIV drugs. And I think for that, you know, this is what we have literature for, is for the inflamed first person that can react against this. Well, that seems like a good place to end. Um... (laughs) Thank you for the brilliant questions. Thank you so much, Kate, for talking to us. We've been talking to Kate Zambrino. Her new book is called To Write As If Already Dead. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Kate Zambrino, author of To Write As If Already Dead. We now turn to our conversation with Susan Bernofsky, author of Clairvoyant of the Small, The Life of Robert Balser. happy to be speaking with the writer and translator Susan Bernofsky today. Susan is Associate Professor of Writing at Columbia University School of the Arts and Director of the Literary Translation Program in Columbia's MFA Writing Program. She's published over 20 books of German translation, many of them by the Swiss-born author Robert Falser, who's the subject of her new biography, Clairvoyant of the Small, The Life of Robert Falser. Robert Falser was born in 1878 in the town of Biel, and notoriously died on Christmas Day of 1956 out on a walk from the mental asylum in which he spent the last decades of his life. Now recognized for his brilliant and experimental short prose and novels, which were admired in their own day by authors such as Franz Kafka, Robert Mustel, and Hermann Hesse, Balzer appears in Susan's biography, not just as the eccentric outsider figure he's often made out to be, but as a fully formed human being with serious creative aspirations, proliferate charms, and many complications. 
Clairvoyant of the small paints a nuanced picture of his turbulent life, much of its drama stemming from financial precarity, family legacy, and the sweeping pendulums of early 20th century European history, as it also illuminates the complexity and beauty of his writing. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit about how you first came to Robert Valser's work. It sounds like you've been reading him and translating him for a very long time. Yeah, you know, as a, as, a, as a young writer, I was just really, really excited by Christopher Middleton's translations of his work, which are so inventive and wild and just showed this incredibly imaginative way of dealing with language and describing the world. And so I first fell in love with him in English when I was still, you know, myself in the process of learning German. And then when I was trying to translate his work, you know, Middleton's translations were a huge inspiration. In fact, I would even try to take the Middleton challenge, which meant, you know, picking out some sentences from something Middleton had translated and try to try it myself without looking at his work and then comparing, you know, what I came up with, with what he came up with. And it was quite a lesson in, you know, what you can do with language and what you can do with language while you're translating, because Walzer is so inventive in German that, you know, if you do not manage to bring some level of inventiveness to the English, it's not going to be right, even if you faithfully report, you know, the content, the information of his sentences. It's never just about that. Can you describe a little bit of what that inventiveness is or just what marks his writing as so unique and original for listeners who haven't read much of it? Yeah, so he has the, he has this way of starting a sentence somewhere and it's starting out like it's going to tell us a story in the sentence and then it gets caught up midway in a metaphor and the next thing you know you're following some strand of the metaphor into some other place and you know maybe there's a rhyme word that shows up that is riffing off of something that came earlier in the sentence and it just becomes this explosive thing above all in his later work, his short prose of the 1920s and his novel, The Robber, which was the one novel manuscript of his we have from that period when he was really writing at his most explosive. You pinpoint empowerment through active renunciation of power as a constant motif in Foster's work. And I'd love for you to just talk about some examples in this, in his writing. Um, But I'm also wondering if you, you know, it seems like it also played out in his life, in his attitude, in his many um, subservient jobs, in his, you know, wanting to be a servant or offering to be a servant for people. Just found that so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I noted even when you were introducing him, you used the concept of precarity to talk about his career. And I think, I can't remember if that's a word I actually use in the book or not, but I've wound up using it in talking about the book, because I think that connects his professional situation very well with the way we're thinking about, you know, the the life of a freelancer right now in the 21st century, where, you know, capitalism is forcing so many of us into, you know, freelance situations. And for him, he was struggling with the fact that his background, his education, which was minimal, kept him from receiving the sort of positions that might have granted him an easy life. And, you know, the the modes of writing that he kept falling into practicing, you know, because out of aesthetic conviction and, you know, 
love and, you know, the joy of writing the way he wanted to do got in the way of his having the kind of financial career success that he was hoping for. And so there's a sense in his own life that's saying, ah, well, screw it. I'm just going to go to servant school and train to be a butler as a way of saying, aha, well, you know, you, this is what you can do with your system that's sort of condemning me to be on the bottom rung. You know, let's just say, you're going to have someone smarter than you as your butler. Deal with that. You know, he's got a character in one of his early novels who's working as a servant in the household of a wealthy woman, and he unnerves her, and she drops something precious to her, and it breaks. She orders him to pick up the pieces, and in order to enrage her, he does it very, very slowly while enjoying the process and finding, in fact, it's described as almost an erotic experience. So, you know, who's in power in that situation? You know, it's, but it's all, it's all very playfully done. His critique of capitalism is couched in playfulness. Uh, you mentioned a figure, I might not be pronouncing it right, of the commie, of the commis. Well, it, it's pronounced like the French way, commis. Um, okay, so you, sorry, I'll take that again. So you mentioned the figure of the commis uh, in the in the book. And, and also, you know, I think we have this uh, famous example of this in Bartleby, you know, the, mm -hmm. the subservient who yes. actually takes over. And he also did, I mean, the, the kind of positions that were available to him were lowly and clerks and, and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah, but there's great literature of, of, of the clerk experience, though, you know, and think of Kafka characters who are sort of clerks in one form or the other. Even Gregor Samsa, who's a salesman, is, you know, basically, I think, an honorary clerk in this sense. And so the Komi, you know, who, which was the early, early 20th century name, name for these clerks, they're always at the bidding of somebody else. And yet the whole business relies on their work, you know, and it's, it's crucial. And, you know, the beautiful handwriting that the clerk writes is crucial for the business success of the venture, you know, and so the clerk can derail everything. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's yeah. always, by, by remaining a, a modest clerk, he's always agreeing again and again at every moment, not to just turn the whole capitalist enterprise on its head. Right. And he didn't want to work. I mean, he didn't really want, it, it sounds like it was to the chagrin of, of his family that he really wanted to pursue his writing and, and not become middle-class and, and get a good job. Well, that was work though. And, you know, he always insisted both in his life and his writing, like in the, in the walk was a famous paragraph about this, but he always insisted that writing was work and that he was, you know, going to make his living as a writer, which, to a large extent, he did, you know, not a not a sumptuous sort of lifestyle, but he did, you know, for many years successfully support himself to a certain standard of living as a writer, writing for newspapers mostly. It wasn't the exact form of career success he had wanted for himself because it was always in these literary forms marked as minor, the, the feuilleton, the newspaper essay, which, you know, were, was a much more important genre then and in German than it is for, for us now. I mentioned the talk of the town and the New Yorker in, in the introduction as a way of framing what this is, but really, you know, every newspaper at the time was publishing, you know, several of these, these essays in every single edition. 
of the paper and selling these was a way for a writer to make a living. And he could be prolific in that regard, right? Um, publishing many pieces, you know, yeah. in a month. Yeah, ex exceptionally, exceptionally, except, you know, in his, towards the end of his career in the 1920s, his work started getting weirder and weirder. And then newspaper editors after a certain point started saying, this is too weird for us to print like this. The one editor wrote to him that he was getting complaints from readers that he was publishing this incomprehensible nonsense. You know, some readers loved it and some did not. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the way his family life and, you know, the kind of transition from being born into a middle-class family or a well-to-do family that then lost, and a large family as well. He had seven brothers and sisters, and um, he eventually had to leave school at a very young age to help contribute to sustaining the younger siblings. Yeah, so he really experienced in a very personal level the way that a family's position on the, you know, the ladder of prosperity affects the family members. And I think he saw this, especially with his mother, um, who seems to have been the one who suffered the most with this loss of economic stability, because she herself had been born into the most extreme poverty and saw what that meant. She knew what it meant to be hungry from her childhood. And so having managed to arrive in a sort of stable bourgeois existence, to see it all crumbling beneath her feet was just really traumatic for her. And, you know, she became deeply depressed. And so young Robert, watching his mother's own, you know, just traumatic distress throughout this period, you know, that, that surely made a, a deep impression on him. And he wrote about this many, many times in many different forms in the future, this, you know, the suffering that she experienced knowing that she was again looking at the sort of endangered existence and, you know, she didn't live very much longer after that. For the kids, I think it was perhaps not as, as traumatic as it was for her, but, you know, the, the practical implications that he had to leave school early is something that he returned to again and again because, you know, he was the kind of kid who would have you know, he was a good student. He did well in school, you know, and to have studied literature properly would have, you know, meant everything to him. I guess I have two questions, but one of them is, it's funny that he's thought of as such a unique figure, but then when you're looking at him in the context of his family, who reminds me a little bit of the Jameses or something, which every family member seemed to be creative or brilliant or thwarted or, you know, mm -hmm. they, he doesn't seem quite as unique in relation to his brothers and sisters. I, ahead, I think yeah. I think I think there's there's so many. If you start looking at like who are the writers who at some point experienced some form of deprivation and have that you know reflected in their work, it's it's quite a club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and he also wrote about his relationship to his siblings, and that was the subject of his first novel. So I wonder if you could just trace yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. So the Tanners, his first novel, speaks so frankly about the lives and struggles and heartbreaks of his siblings that he laid that they were quite taken aback and he later apologized for it and said he you know regretted having written so exposingly about his family members although there's not quite a one-to-one -one correspondence with each character you know there's four characters in that book four siblings and he maps 
characteristics of various of his siblings onto, onto these characters, but he certainly writes in great detail and particularly about his brother, Carl, the brother to whom he was closest, the painter, who's now forgotten today, but at the time was extremely famous, much, much more famous than Robert was, and his sister, Lisa. But Carl Walzer, you know, at the time the Tanners was written, you know, the most sought after stage set designer in Berlin, which, you know, meant something because the theater was very important to the artistic life of that city at that time. And he also follows Carl and, and also Lisa, his sister, and, and goes to live where they live. And so they, their existence kind of dictates a little bit um, his movements because he was famously peripatetic and constantly moving and, and taking different jobs. Indeed, yeah. Um, you know, he's a younger brother and he followed his older siblings and he followed his, his brother Carl for adventure and challenge. And he followed his sister Lisa for comfort and refuge. So he started writing fairly young. He, he became a poet and he also was interested in theater. Maybe around 19 or 20, he first started publishing. By around 25, he had published his first novel. And just wondering if you could talk about how he was received, how his work, you know, his, he got great notices. His work was received well. And, and people seemed to believe he really was a genius of some kind and that he had immense talent. Yeah, so so his first publications of poems when he was very young, you know, he was praised as a as a poet in sort of terms that that praised him as a charmingly naive poet. So, you know, right from the beginning, there was this notion that he was very talented, a very talented young writer. And his first prose book also was a book of you know, little stories that was masquerading as the school essays of a schoolboy who died young. So again, you know, the sort of naive aspect to the work caused him to be received initially as a writer who specialized in this sort of naive work. But the novels that he wrote in, in Berlin, um, The Tanners, The Assistant, and Jakob von Bunten are far more complex than that. And they were enthusiastically received by, you know, other writers and, you know, Kafka read him with enthusiasm before Kafka himself had even started to publish um, Musil. And, but he, he, had, he had the bad luck to be with the wrong publisher. And, you know, even though he was a writer that other writers admired, but he did not have the, the commercial success to go along with it. Whereas if he had, you know, I, I write about this, and this is one of the really sad things, you know, the great publisher, Samuel Fisher, who was, you know, a self-made man who had just, you know, on the, on, on the basis of his own good taste become the most important publisher of this period. He discovered Thomas Mann, he discovered Hermann Hesse, and he wanted to discover Robert Walzer, but Robert Walzer was publishing with the first publisher who had, you know, appeared and was serving as, a, as his benefactor and he remained faithful to Bruno Cassirer, that first publisher. And, you know, that was really a bad stroke of luck for him because Cassirer was not a publisher who was in a position to really sell an, a young writer. And Robert Walzer said no to the publisher who could have made him a star. So despite, you know, publishing a handful of other books, he just never received in his lifetime any commercial success or... Right. I shouldn't say any, but 
he didn't receive the kind of commercial success that could have sustained him to yeah. um, live off his writing alone. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a dozen books, not just a handful. But now we can say which of these books are remembered. Well, among the, the Walzer readers in Germany, you know, and Switzerland and Austria who read him in German, these books very much are remembered. In the English-speaking world, it's a little... Um, the picture is a little vaguer because um, Christopher Middleton started the tradition of selecting stories, you know, picking and choosing from different of his collections to make volumes. And I continued in this tradition, as have others. So we don't have the books that Robert Walzer himself assembled. We have selections of his work, different selections. And so, you know, readers in German have a much clearer sense of, ah, these were his books. Whereas in English, we have lots of different anthologies that overlap with all the books he himself put together and published. So that might be, you know, a desideratum for some later phase of Walzer reception in English, you know, reassembling the books the way he himself put them together. When in Germany did he, I, you know, because I think of him in, in America as very much now a completely recognized literary figure, famous, mm-hmm. having had, you know, his reputation has just been reborn. Um, and I'm curious when you think that was, why you think that was, and I'm, I'm wondering if it is the same in Germany and when it took place yeah. there, if it did. It started earlier in Germany. There was a huge sort of re-upping of interest in his work around the time of the 100th anniversary of his birth. 1978. And so in preparation for that, the great German publishing house Zorkam, which, you know, publishes great German classic authors as well as contemporary works, prepared a anniversary edition of his works, a mass market complete works or collected works rather, that was widely distributed and sort of to appear to be published in this form is the mark major German language classic author. But there, you know, Writers were rediscovering his work, you know, a, a bit before that. And if you, you know, look at writers like Thomas Bernhard and Peter Hanke, a little later, Alfred Jelinek, you know, a lot of German language writers were really just become, oh, Max Frisch also. Mm-hmm. A lot of German language writers were just really getting excited about his work, really, you know, maybe even starting in the 60s and certainly in the 70s. Yeah, it would seem that um, all those authors that you just mentioned that there's a tone that Walser would share with them that is not completely sincere, that right. always leaving you guessing a little bit, you know, if what they if they if they really mean what they're writing, or there's a, there's a, just a ton of irony in in all those writers that you mention. Um, right. If, so like know, like Thomas Thomas Bernhard took like you know adopted the Walserian rant, you know, the, except it becomes a little darker not quite as lighthearted. Thomas Bernhard, unlike Robert Walzer, lived through, well, as a writer anyway, lived through, you know, World War II and is writing in the aftermath of that. Whereas Walzer, the work of his we have was all written beforehand. And, you know, uh, that's, I'm sure like, that's not the only reason, but, you know, we see a deeper darkness, mm. I would say, in Bernhard's work. But Walzer did live and fight in World War I. Correct. Well, he didn't fight because Switzerland was neutral, but he was in uniform and, you know, built fortifications. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's interesting when, when we're talking about darker, because the presence of mental illness, you know, which existed throughout his family with his brother, who was also institutionalized with his mother, 
and ultimately, I, I guess there's some ambiguity how much he he himself was mentally ill or was he just so financially precarious, so unable to make a living that he didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I wonder if you could talk about the last few decades of his life and how he came to be institutionalized, yeah. which is I just find so heartbreaking. Yeah, that part was really difficult to write about. And, you know, I read his medical record and it just, you know, it's a terrible thing to find yourself reading the, you know, the, the doctor's notes on a writer you revere. But it is clear that he did struggle with mental illness. It's also clear, I think, that, you know, given a financially more stable picture for him, he would not have had to remain for the rest of his life in the institution. You know, he certainly needed some institutional support, certainly at the beginning, but his illness was manageable, you know, but he did have hallucinations. You know, he heard voices and he writes repeatedly about that and the entire medical record talks about this. Um, today, I think if somebody with his set of symptoms showed up for care, you know, I think they would become an outpatient um, after a certain while, you know, we have better medications now, or we have medications now, you know, which did not exist in his period. So this sort of treatment for mental illness was sort of keeping people out of trouble and out of sight. On the other hand, you know, he had had so much difficulty living alone, you know, even as, you know, he wasn't, he was never fully alone because he lived as a boarder with, you know, landladies, but he was struggling with that. And I think, you know, the institution also offered him a certain sense of security that felt good to him um, and that, you know, helped him. Uh, and in the beginning, it, it, he was also able to still publish, right, from from the institution and, and to write. Yes. Um, so what happened to his writing once he was institutionalized? And, um, yeah. you know, I you, you write that, you know, after a certain point, he never published again, but he continued to write or not? Well, you know, that is a question that there's no unambiguous answer to whether he continued to write in a period after, after he stopped publishing. I personally came to the conclusion that I believe that he did based on, you know, eyewitness reports and circumstantial evidence. At first, it was in Volzer scholarship, it was at first widely believed that he had just stopped writing but then, you know, these reports began to surface and there are enough of them from different sources that I believe them. But, you know, the big difference between his first few years in the Valdau Asylum in Bern was that he was, you know, a voluntary patient there and could come and go as he pleased, could sign himself out and go take a walk. He had more freedom there. And, he was transferred to the asylum in Harizau, where he spent then the last 23 years of his life, which is a really long time. It's almost a quarter of a century. He was transferred there very much against his will. And, you know, the director there was, was somebody he had known in his previous life who he had not particularly respected. And that this person then had a lot of power over him and also, you know, had sort of a condescending attitude toward him. And this was just unbearable. And I think his stopping this writing process, you know, was 
self-defense, defiance against that unbearable situation. As someone who's translated Balzer for so long, what was it like for you to write this book and to confront his life as well as his work? And um, I'm also curious just what the difficulties were because he was so peripatetic. So I'm, you, you often allude that huge periods of his life are not documented, you know, or he, papers are gone. He didn't, he, he didn't keep things. So how do you, yeah. he you didn't know, keep, he didn't, he didn't keep stuff. That was so frustrating for a biographer. He didn't keep stuff. Some things he did keep because he was using like the back of the page to write a manuscript on or something, you know, a lot of what we have like letters to him that have survived, survived only that way because otherwise he threw stuff out. He just, he traveled light. That was tricky. And also, you know, as a translator, it, it was really an interesting transition to writing the biography because, you know, as a translator, I came, you know, I spent 30 years trying to find my way into his work through language and developing my own sense of what his work sounds like, what his voice is. And, but in his, his work, he's so often you know, playing masquerade games and, you know, telling us about himself, telling us the truth, but not really or differently or telling us untruths couched as truths because his work so often has the appearance of autobiographical writing and sometimes does have some autobiographical writing in it. You know, this is, you know, a hundred years before people are talking about autofiction. It's very, very dangerous to just take his writing that seems autobiographical for granted. And so I grappled with that in the book, how much of what he writes can we use as source material for a biography and also how much of what I believe I know about him from translating his work is actually true. Yeah, there there were some understanding processes (laughs) involved in all that. Um, Well, you you do a really beautiful job here and um, the book is is really just so wonderful to read. Thanks for speaking with us today, Susan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. We've been speaking to Susan Bernofsky. Her newest book is a biography of Robert Walzer called The Clairvoyant of the Small. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.